0: Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish
1: Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show, where we interview fighters and firebrands on the political and cultural battlefields. With us today is Josh Hammer, who serves as the opinion editor of Newsweek. No, Hammer is not a liberal, and yes, it's hard to believe that a mainstream media outlet would hire anything other than a liberal to be its opinion editor. But such are the facts, and we will be asking Josh Hammer about them momentarily. Hammer is also a research fellow with the Edmund Burke Foundation, a syndicated columnist, host of one podcast, The Josh Hammer Show, and co-host of another, The NatCon Squad Podcast. Before he attained his position at Newsweek, Hammer served as an editor at The Daily Wire, clerked for a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, and graduated from the University of Chicago Law School. Josh, welcome to the program.
0: Elliot, thank you so much for having me. I've actually been listening to a number of your programs, and you are fiery, and I love it. So it's actually really a pleasure to be here.
1: Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Okay, so I have to ask you at the outset, how in the world did you, a conservative,
0: become the opinion editor of Newsweek? Well, look, I mean, I I think without betraying any kind of inner workings or secrets, I mean, what you see in Newsweek currently is what you get. So if you go to Newsweek.com, you can go to the very bottom of the page, and we have a very public-facing mission statement that explicitly is dedicated to airing all sides. And the new ownership, to its great credit, takes that mission statement extremely seriously. I myself am a strong conservative. I'm about as right-wing in in many respects as they come. But we publish any number of op-eds any day that are liberal, left of center, centrist that I personally disagree with. We, of course, also do platform conservatives. So I have a team of five editors. I have four deputies. We're roughly split two and a half, two and a half. Uh, my deputy, body, Angar Sargon, has like a little uh, half of each, you might say. But it's been a really fun project. I've been doing this now for two and a half years. Uh, my show podcast for them started earlier this year. I've got a new newsletter as well. So things are good at newsweek.com. I would encourage the listeners of this program to go ahead and check it out.
1: It's wonderful that it is – the way that you just described it. I once had a philosophy professor in college. He actually was conservative, believe it or not, and somehow we got into a discussion of why there's so many liberal professors. And one of his theories was that a conservative head of a department will hire a liberal professor because he does believe in having a diversity of views. But a liberal head of a department almost will never hire a conservative professor. So, I mean, I, kudos to whoever is running Newsweek that they take the liberal project seriously, because mo- most liberals don't take the liberal project seriously, as far
0: as I can tell. Right. So, I mean, what you, what you just said is totally accurate. I mean, all Newsweek is trying to do is trying to be really kind of a liberal brand, kind of the historical sense of what it meant to be a liberal brand. Well, it wasn't that long ago, Elliot. I mean, I'm a fairly young guy. I'm 33 years old. I mean, I remember when I was growing up with my grandfather. My grandfather had a very interesting career, but towards the end of his career, he was a newspaperman himself, actually. He was the publisher of a chain of kind of smaller regions. Newspapers. I remember poring over the Sunday New York Times op-ed section with him. The op-ed section, even when I was growing up in the late '90s, early 2000s, they still had more or less the whole spectrum. It was always center left, but it was not far left. It's only a fairly recent thing over the past. 10, 15 years or so, as leftism, wokeism, progressivism, whatever you want to call it, has supplanted liberalism. as kind of the uh, institutional philosophical lodestar of large swaths of the American left that these liberal institutions have become illiberal. So all Newsweek is really trying to do is retain a a more classical, traditional sense of liberalism.
1: Right. And I would think from a business standpoint that that's also a smart idea. People like to have diversity of views, at least a lot of people do. And All right, the next question I have for you is uh, The overwhelming majority of non Orthodox Jews are liberals. You aren't. How do you explain your outlier status?
0: Well, first of all, um, you know, I mean, Ellie, I don't know, I don't know if you and I have ever done like a religious halakhic deep dive. I, I've actually gotten much more observant over the past decade or so. I would, I oh, would not, I would, I would not consider myself a a, a frum Jew uh, at least quite yet. But uh, you know, we have a fully kosher kitchen. We have mezuzot all over our condo. I wrap the fill-in, actually every single day. Whenever I travel for my speaking engagements, I'm sure to travel with my uh, talit to fill in sitter and oh, so forth. So. Um, you know, again, not not fully there yet, but 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 considerably further, I think, than, you know, most people who would self-identify as secular. I, I would call myself a, a, a traditional Jew. When I go to shul, I exclusively go to Chabad or Orthodox shul. Anyway, I did grow up, which is kind of the crux of your question. I did grow up in a very stereotypical kind of reformed secular household. Um, so I, how I kind of came to where I am now from that uh, very kind of secular, uh, somewhat assimilated upbringing— I don't have kind of a crisp, easy answer for you. I can say that from a broader kind of political perspective, kind of my seminal moment, I was in seventh grade when 9-11 happened. So I grew up in Westchester County, New York. I grew up specifically in a, in a town right along the Hudson River there. You could quite literally see the smoke from the Twin Towers. So I was 12 years old. I was in seventh grade. And that was kind of, to me, my political moment. I mean, it was just a such a clear kind of sensory overload, kind of visceral undertaking of seeing evil in real time. And I was able to just see that the only way to necessarily confront evil is with good. And then once you accept this very kind of sober, realistic view of the world, that there is such thing as good, that there is such thing as evil, you're already kind of no longer a liberal, to be clear. Once you take a sober view of the world where not everything is kind of easily reducible to kumbaya utopia, and all that, then you are effectively a conservative. Uh, not that I was a liberal before the age of 12. I don't think I really had political police. But so, I, you know, I, I've been right of center since the very first day that I started forming political opinions. I mean, I, I was the editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper for three years, and I actually wrote like a little kind of left-right counterpoint column. I was the right-of-center columnist even going back to high school. So I, I've been, broadly speaking, who I am for the entire duration of the length of time that I've had political opinions. Now, I guess it relates to the religious question insofar as I think a lot of people kind of find their political beliefs through their religion. I I almost did it in the reverse actually. I almost kind of found a, a deeper connection to Judaism through my politics as I, as I got you know through college and really kind of after graduating college into into my twenties, that was really when it started to click. You know, I mean, you kind of do your reading, you kind of go through your, your Edmund Burke, your Russell Kirk, some of the kind of the formidable kind of traditionalist conservatives thinkers here. And you start hearing all of these kind of you know uh, waxing poetic about the the virtues of tradition and and you know the Judeo Christian civilization and all the and all the virtues of, of the Bible. And at some point, you kind of have to ask yourself, well, okay, I mean, if I politically believe in this, why am I not doing it, <laughs> or why why am I not engaging myself? So it it was almost kind of a reverse order than I think for, for most people. Um, and again, I'm not fully there yet. I don't pretend to be a fully from Jew, but uh, I wrap the fill in every day. I do a little Dafiomi every day. So I'm, I'm getting pretty I'm, – I'm getting closer actually. <laughs> yeah, the Dafiomi I think puts you in a different category. I'm um, a lawyer member, so the Dafiomi comes a little easier. The, it's like the legal sense. That's true. Okay.
1: Um, in a recent appearance on Tucker Carlson Tonight, you said that Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, does not speak for most of American Jewry. I would like to think that's true, but I'm a bit skeptical. Considering how many Jews are flaming liberals, I'm afraid that it's quite possible that Greenblatt does in fact speak for most Jews in in this country, no?
0: Well, look, uh, to be totally honest with you, I would have slightly reformulated the way that I said that statement on Tucker. I think it was probably unfair for me to say that Jonathan Greenblatt literally speaks for anyone other than Jonathan Greenblatt. I mean I'm not not a particularly big proponent of kind of – group spokespeople in general. So, you know, look, the heat of the moment, live television, it is what it is. I probably would have tweaked and reformulated that slightly. However, I don't necessarily think he was exaggerating it too much. Look, I do think that he speaks to an extent for the reformed tikkun olam community. Tragically and unfortunately, by sheer numerical size, any way you slice it, the vast majority of American Jews do fall into this theologically left of center. Um, I think reform Judaism is by far the largest sect of of Judaism as it is practiced, or as the case may be for reform is not practiced um, in America. Um, You know, I'm cautiously optimistic that that's changing. Um, You know, as many demographers have detailed at great length, intermarriage rates for reform are exceedingly high, which is of course deeply tragic. At the same time, the Orthodox community has ever higher birth rates. So, Hopefully that starts to correct a little more there, but, you know, look, it's, it's a real problem, and there are a few things personally because, you know, again, I did not grow up in a religious community. I, a lot of my childhood friends were Jewish, but they were these reformed kind of secular types. So having grown up in that milieu, having seen this, there are very few Jewish conservative commentators who despise, utterly despise you know, reform leftist, ikuno Lam faux-Judaism as much as I do. So it's a real, real problem. And Jonathan Greenblatt, obviously, is an idiosyncratic schmendrick as well, if I'm allowed to say that.
1: And he – I mean he's like – I forget the person who ran the Anne Frank Foundation a few years ago who couldn't care less about Anne Frank, just used the name Anne Frank to attack Trump. And he runs an organization, like you pointed out, that has that's supposed to, to deal with anti-Semitism, and he's just using it for political ends, not for the ends that he's supposed to be using it. And you made the further point, which I thought was very smart, that he actually probably is causing more anti-Semitism than he's reducing.
0: Yeah, totally. Look, I, I... – It's really tragic. I mean, anti-Semitism is on the rise in America. I mean, like there's really no other way to say that. I mean, we can dispute the extent to which it's rising. I think the ADL fudges its data in various ways. They were trying to fudge their data in a way that hurt former President Trump and so forth, which is really despicable there. But based on the numbers that I have seen, just like FBI hate crime statistics, things of that nature there, it seems like anti-Semitism is largely on the rise in America. And it is just deeply tragic that at a time like that, that the number one organization that ostensibly ought to be committed to dedicating the timeless scourge of Jew hatred has just been totally co-opted by an Al Sharpton equivalent shakedown artist. That really is what Jonathan Greenblatt is. Look at what he did to Kyrie Irving recently of the Brooklyn Nets. He literally took a donation, um, you know, as an apology and then let him off the hook. Then he subsequently, I think, set the money back. But the point was he was willing to do that. The point was he was willing to literally, if I'm I'm not mistaken, I think he was willing to take a donation just to kind of let Kyrie off the hook and kind of bless his imprimatur of legitimacy. That's horrific stuff. Okay. That is nasty, nasty stuff. As I said on Tucker, Jonathan Greenblatt appeared with Al Sharpton earlier this year. Al Sharpton, who has still not apologized at all whatsoever for the pogrom he started 31 years ago in Crown Heights, leading to the death of Yankel Rosenbaum. May his memory be a blessing. So just galling stuff. And again, I think the EDL to an extent, much like the SPLC, the NAACP, a lot of these kind of once venerable civil rights institutions, if you look at the broader trajectory Again, the ADL was, it was never a conservative organization. It was a liberal organization, but it has been this insidious transformation, much like the New York Times that we referred to earlier. All of these once liberal institutions have been co-opted and transmogrified into leftist, illiberal, wokist institutions. That's a very, very important distinction. I think Greenblatt's predecessor, Abe Foxman, was a liberal, but he was not a leftist. Jonathan Greenblatt, by contrast, is a leftist, and that's a big difference.
1: In a recent speech, you said we must get Bibles back in schools and God back
0: in the public square. How do we do that? Well, part of it is the U.S. Supreme Court has really told us that to a large extent we're not able to do this. We're actually very slowly starting to see the unraveling of much of this misbegotten mid-20th century jurisprudence. Just this past term, actually, there was an excellent case from the U.S. Supreme Court – uh, it was litigated by my former colleagues at First Liberty Institute, which is a wonderful uh, re- religious liberty nonprofit. And the holding of that case was to put a final death knell in an early 1970s case called Lemon versus Kurtzman. You got to remember, Elliot, the the real problem with large swaths of modern American constitutional law jurisprudence is that there was so much post-World War II garbage with the Warren courts and and to a slightly lesser extent really the Burger court. So think about the late 1940s through really kind of the mid to late 1970s or so. So a lot of these public religion cases go back to that. So in the late 1940s, you have a case called Everson versus Board of Education, which is the first time that the U.S. Supreme Court adopted the rhetoric of so-called separation of church and state. The first time the U.S. Supreme Court ever said that the First Amendment's Establishment Clause, which makes no textual reference whatsoever to a wall of separation, does this. In fact, the rhetoric of a so-called wall of separation actually dates back to a 233-word nothing burger of a letter from Thomas Jefferson in 1802 to the Danbury, Connecticut Baptist. So – from the Everson case, which was the first time that they said that there was a strict wall of separation, it was done on only 15 years to 1962 to a case called Engel versus Vitale out of New York State where the regents' prayer, which was an ecumenical prayer, it was not an explicitly sectarian, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, whatever prayer. It was, it was an ecumenical prayer. In the Engel case, the court said that no, that New York public schools were not allowed to say the regents' ecumenical prayer. So from a legal perspective, we've got to start unpeeling more of these terrible cases. Again, we're starting to do so. This Lemon versus Kurtzman case, which is another establishing cause case, was finally formally overturned just this last term. But we have some more work left to do. So we've got to kind of do this from a legal perspective. And then obviously, the cultural perspective is, of course, the much thornier and more difficult part of the problem here. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you know Andrew Breitbart famously said that politics is downstream of culture. I personally view it as more of a two-way arrow. I think the law can be a teacher. The law can actually kind of sculpt minds, can sculpt citizens, and can kind of inculcate civic virtue unto itself, but it can only do so to an extent. Um, You know, law as a teacher doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense in a culture that has entirely forgotten who it was. And As John Adams, our second president famously said, the Constitution was only made for a religious and moral people. It is wholly inadequate for any other kind of people. I wonder if you
1: could just elaborate a little bit on that point, because people like to quote that passage from John Adams sometimes, but very few actually bother elaborating. I mean, Bill Barr in his speech in Notre Dame a few years ago did, but not too many people do. And I think it's important for us to really flush out that argument. Why is it so important for society to be a religious society in order for America to continue the way we know it as a flourishing democracy?
0: Well, first of all, that's a wonderful reference. I would encourage the listeners to go ahead and check out Bill Barr's exceptional speech at the University of Notre Dame in late 2019. One of my very closest friends uh, in the world actually was was one who wrote that speech. I will not divulge his identity here on the air, but it was a real barn burner, and it was just a fantastic—it's one of my favorite speeches that a cabinet official has given over the past 10, 15 years or so. It's, It's really sensational, honestly. So what John Adams was really getting at with this idea that the U.S. constitutional order is predicated upon the assumption of a a religious and moral people, the U.S. Constitution, by nature of what it does, by nature of the fact that we, the people, are sovereign, we are self governing. We ultimately control our own destiny in this country, and the founders, in recognizing that, implicitly assumed that the people who would be writing the rules, making kind of the decisions, who would be engaging in democratic debate— in their caucuses to vote on candidates, going to the polls for ballot initiatives in legislatures and governors' mansions, whatever they assumed that the people had some sort of moral foundation, had had some sort of bedrock for doing so. You kind of have to question if, on the contrary, if they had thought that the American people would be, you know, godless heathens. I'm not necessarily saying that America in the year 2022 mm-hmm. is godless heathens, but we certainly do seem to have large swaths of that, as anyone who has kind of taken a a hard look at the transgender movement might tell you. But I think you, you kind of have to ask yourself if the American founders had viewed the American people as a bunch of godless heathens without any kind of connection to... Bible or revelation or reason or truth or uh, or frankly just public Christianity because that is really what the American founders actually really believed in. If you look at George Washington's Thanksgiving Day proclamation, for instance, they're clearly and explicitly appealing to the deity, to God Almighty himself. You really do have to assume that if the founders didn't think that the people agreed with them about this basic building block for society, whether they would have sculpted the Constitution along the lines that they did. Maybe they would have actually reserved less power for the people. Maybe they would have kind of instituted a a slightly more authoritarian-looking form of government. So they really assumed, they really assumed, and this was going to be the hard work of civic society, this is kind of, you know, your old-school Tocqueville kind of intermediate institutions, your churches, your synagogues, and so forth there, but here's the but here, and this is kind of um, part of the whole national conservatism movement that I'm very much a part of, but they also did not assume that government had no role to play here. This is the idea of government and law as a teacher. They absolutely thought that laws should be crafted explicitly reflecting moralistic impulses and moralistic reasoning and moralistic argumentation. So for example, if you go back and look at kind of the early 20, 30 years of the American Republic, you look at things like anti-blasphemy laws, laws pertaining to obscenity, obviously laws pertaining to pornography and things of that nature, these were not value-neutral judgments. The government was, was entirely capable of putting its moral thumb on this scale of punishing bad and rewarding good. And I think that too was kind of implicitly assumed for a very long time. And it really, it really was not until this post-war, mid-20th century period that I alluded to earlier that we started to lose that, I think.
1: Interesting. I, I raised this topic just recently, actually, one of my podcasts with Terry Schilling, who you might know from the American Principles yep. Project. I'm just going to raise it again because it's the subject I'm sort of interested in as well, because we on the right kind of grow up with freedom, 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 freedom. Um, and then if you get a little bit more intellectually involved, you start learning about Jefferson and John Locke and the theory of government. And under all these theories, none of these social laws are really legitimate. Um, and yet, like you pointed out, if you go back to the beginning of the American Republic, the states were passing all of these laws. So, I mean, was this kind of like a contradiction from the very beginning where maybe the federal government was very hands-off, and the states were very hands-on, or where the sta- states were not really reflecting the Je- Jeffersonian, Lockean ideal?
0: How do you see it? Well, look, uh, Locke himself is an interesting character because you know, it is debatable the extent to which Lockean, Enlightenment liberalism logically resulted in the current kind of morass of progressivism. A lot of people draw a very clean, straight line from locking liberalism to the transgender movement and things like that, and I'm very sympathetic to that. I mean, I do think that a very bare kind of values-neutral liberalism where there is no actual room for statecraft and you know your effective governing philosophy kind of amounts to let the chips fall where they may, um, I, I do think that, that that easily can result in, in, in what it currently has resulted in. In fact, the line that I've used before – Um, is that liberalism uh, oftentimes is a one-way cultural ratchet towards progressivism, absent some sort of thumb on the scale. That thumb on the scale, though, is what I was kind of just talking about. It's kind of this idea that society has to be guarded by guardrails and that our legislation should explicitly reflect that. So, you know, look, I mean, I'm a lawyer, right? I went to University of Chicago Law School, clerked for a federal judge. That was kind of my career before I kind of jumped into this media space. And, you know, a lot of idiots in law school kind of uh, regurgitate this utterly asinine idea it's like oh you can't legislate morality Uh, are you kidding me i I mean like where do you think the entire concept of the rule of law going back to western civilization going back to hammurabi and mesopotamia i mean like wherever you want to start it with roman law mosaic law wherever where do you think any concept of law actually starts why is murder illegal why is homicide illegal in a criminal code? You're not just kind of coming up with that out of nowhere. No, that, that actually has some sort of origin there, and that origin is the Bible. I, I mean, so all of this is kind of messed up. This idea that legislators, that judges, which is the slightly more provocative part that I'm involved in. I have, I have a jurisprudential proposal that I've been pushing the past few years called common good originalism, which involved a slightly more kind of moralistic hands-on approach to judging and jurisprudential statecraft. But all of this is trying to recognize the fact that the post-war American period, the past 60, 70 years of American life, has been doing exactly what I just described. It's, it's been liberalism on this one-way ratchet toward cultural progressivism because there's been no countervailing thumb on the scale. And part of that is what you said is that a lot of conservatives who have grown up in kind of the post-war capital C conservative capital M movement incorporated have been told that the end-all be-all, what it means to be a conservative in America is just freedom, 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 individualism, individualism of individualism, individualism. And that served its place, okay? That's served its place, but the time is very, very, very clear, I think, for a much more holistic solidaristic, communitarian view of conservatism that involves a much stronger thumb on the scale, at a bare minimum, prudentially speaking, to try to right some of the past decade's wrongs.
1: Just to clarify in terms of, uh, of what you were saying in terms of Jefferson, would someone like Jefferson agree with anti-blasphemy laws? Is that consonant with his philosophy, or are we just saying that Jefferson was an outlier, the American public was always based on perhaps a different viewpoint than the one maybe we've been talking
0: I think the American founders were split on these questions the same way okay. that they were split on many other questions Jefferson was a a liberal he was an enlightenment liberal I mean he was basically just you know reciting John Locke in the in the declaration that's not to say that Jefferson was wrong on everything of course he was not but I think it was kind of you know in the when you had the emergence of the first party system in the 1790s so Jefferson and, and Madison were part of the democratic republicans uh, the other political party was the Federalist Party. That was John Adams, John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, George Washington. The latter was the slightly more traditionalist kind of conservative party. Um, and that was why you saw the Federalist Party push things like the Alien and Sedition Acts, which you know, I'm not necessarily going to defend every letter of that law, but it was kind of this broader idea that there are firm guardrails on speech. So I don't know that Jefferson himself would have been a vociferous proponent of anti-blasphemy laws. He himself, of course, was quite famously theologically heterodox. Um, you know, but certainly someone like a John Jay or now Alexander Hamilton probably would have been much more sympathetic to that.
1: Okay. In a recent article, you wrote that the Republican Party has become a populist party and must remain so if it wants to win. In making this argument, you cite a study that found that 52% of the country leans right on social issues, but only 27% leans right on economic issues. I found that study interesting, so I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate on that study and on the article's central argument.
0: So the study was from a political scientist by the name of Lee Drutman. He composed this in the year 2017. He kind of uh, does a lot of research to survey exit polling data of voters' preferences on various policy positions. And Lee Drutman basically concludes that there is a cultural conservative majority in America, but traditional economic conservatism, which really is kind of just libertarian economics, frankly, is kind of like a Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek approach to economics – is is a distinct minority, especially when you include in that, you know, notions of, of, of free trade absolutism and things of that nature there. So I think what Drummond basically concluded, which is what a lot of people have included, is that part of the reason for Donald Trump's appeal in 2016, this is obviously not exclusively the the reason. Donald Trump's a universal name brand. He, you know, he has quite the personality, to put it mildly. There were a lot of things there that I think leapt off the page for, for persuadable voters. But at least one of the things that that he got right from a political candidate perspective is that he was hardcore on all the right cultural issues, whether it's immigration, whether it's kind of this just basic idea of American kind of rejuvenation and identity. But he was much more prudential and realistic on issues of political economy. So crucially, he rejected free trade absolutism. Trump has been no more consistent on any issue than he's been consistent on trade. Going back since the 70s, 80s, he was a, he was a skeptic of, of NAFTA back when it was being negotiated in the 90s. So he has always been a much you know more, more mercantilist proponent of a strong industrial base, things of the nature there. So he ran on that. And you know, he had a line in healthcare, which in, in retrospect seems like it was a, it was a seminal moment in the 2016 debates. Full disclosure: I was not a Trump day one guy. I was actually um, I, I campaigned quite literally in multiple states for Senator Ted Cruz that election cycle. But there was one primary debate where I recall where Trump and Cruz were talking about healthcare, and I don't remember exactly what Ted said, but at some point, Trump looks to Ted Cruz and he says, "We're not going to let people die in the streets, Ted." We're just not going to do it. And I think it got like a like a huge round of applause because, you know, a lot of the 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 Republican policy points on on, health care and health insurance have been kind of free trade maximalists, just get the government out, blah, blah, blah. That's not necessarily how everyone views health care, especially kind of as the cultural conservative element of the modern Republican coalition has attracted naturally a lot of the old school Reagan Democrats, these kind of more working class blue collar voters. So Trump really did tap into that and in the year 2019, in March 2019, First Things Magazine, which is the fabulous journal edited by Rusty Reno, they produced this piece uh, that was co-signed by probably 10 to 15 intellectuals, uh, most of whom were Catholic, not all of them, entitled Against the Dead Consensus. And they basically said that, we, that we're not going back, that what Trump did from a policy perspective and kind of realigning the Republican Party is here to stay. And in this recent column that that I titled Still Against the Dead Consensus, I was looking at the aftermath of the midterm elections last month, which clearly could have gone better for Republicans than they actually went. And I was just saying, no, uh, we're still not going back. Some things probably do need to change, but the basic takeaway. Is that we cannot and will not go back to the John McCain, Paul Ryan, Mitt Romney days of, you know, slashing entitlements and, you know, free trade with our adversaries as kind of the be-all-end-all of, you know, conservative statesmanship. No. That is quite literally, in many respects, the opposite of what we need now. We need a much more pragmatic focus on cohering and conserving the nation state of of conserving some sense of americanism and the american people and all that that entails when it comes to immigration policy trade policy cultural renewal that was the bibles back in the schools that's that that's that components there but long story short we're not going back there's there is there is no future for the republican party in the 2008 or 2012 platform
1: I take your point, but the fact is I said this when Trump was running us, so people said, oh, Trump is for big government. I said, tell me one Republican politician who, practically speaking, has ever tried to reduce the size of the government. Even Paul Ryan, I remember in the the election, what was it, 2012, I guess, in the convention speech, he was criticizing Obama for slashing some funds from either Medicare or Medicaid, I forget which one. I'm thinking this is the small government conservative in the convention speech is criticizing Obama for trying to shrink a program. And I wrote, actually, one of the only times I wrote a letter to the editor. In general, by the way, it's a good idea for Republicans to write letters to the editor if they're not doing more important things. It's very you know simple. But I did this like six, seven years ago when Trump was running. I just wrote a two-paragraph letter to the editor to the New York Post, and it was published. It was uh, directed to Rich Lowry's article, he, which he was criticizing Trump for not wanting to reduce the size of government. I said, no Republican has, practically speaking, ever tried to really reduce the welfare state. And the only difference is that Trump admits it out loud. Anyways, that was my beef. Last question. Some conservatives argue that in order to win, you need to focus on culture. So how do you suggest we go about winning aspects of the culture? Because that's a big project and it's a long-term project. What
0: would you say we need to do? So one thing is that from a consumer perspective, I think that conservatives have to get much more comfortable boycotting certain brands and just saying that they will not associate themselves with certain lines of clothing, certain restaurant chains. Things of that nature. So, you know, Balenciaga is a good example. They've been in the news recently for their um, complicity with exploiting children and sexualized children in particular there. We need to affirmatively say that we will not have anything to do with that brand whatsoever because conservatives are basically half the country. I mean, Republicans did win more popular votes uh, last month in in the national popular vote than Democrats did. I think the final popular vote for congressional candidates margin across the country, Republicans won by about three and a half points or so. You know, it didn't do a whole lot of good as far as the final tally is concerned for various reasons. But the point is that that is a huge, huge block of people and that people actually started to kind of behave culturally from a consumer perspective, according to kind of their values and preferences, that kind of clout would and should and, and, and will actually add up to have some sort of change. The other thing that's going on there, as far as, I mean, I mean I, I, it's kind of a double-edged sword, but my basic kind of prescription for the extent to which people trying, on our side, trying to kind of affect the culture. So one thing is that you ha- we, we have to try as hard as we can to not fully, fully, fully give up on these old institutions that are fading. Um, so for example, what I, what I mean by that is that to the extent that we can still get a conservative on the faculty of a leading university or um, as, as a columnist in a major liberal newspaper, we shouldn't be totally forsaking that. I mean, I, I think it would be a mistake for us to 100% kind of self-silo go into our cocoons. But the other half of that, which sh- should be obvious enough, is that we also need our own publications, our own institutions. You know, Before Elon Musk, we, we needed our own social media platforms. We do need all of this. And that, that that's going to entail a lot of money. So I am not a donor class figure myself. I am, you know, I am not rolling in the billions here. But we really do need more kind of pro-America donor class people, wealthy people who just really, really love this country and are frankly willing to write fat checks to younger people who are willing to start alternative publications, alternative media institutions, alternative universities. That's what this University of Austin project's trying to do. You know, like Hillsdale College, I mean, we, we need more Hillsdale Colleges. We do. And again, that's not to say that we should entirely forsake, you know, the Ivy League or whatever there. And, you know, I went to University of Chicago for law school, which is, is still one of the relatively rare, fairly good ones um, as far as kind of uh, the elite institutions are concerned. So we should not be totally forsaking them, but we absolutely do need a lot more donor money in the game there to try to help seed fund a lot of these kind of up-and-coming institutions but so, you know it, it's it's complicated. I don't have like an easy answer here. Um, but uh, it really ultimately does come back to religion. I hate, I hate to sound like a theologian, but America without any sense whatsoever of God and you know from one Jew to another, really frankly, just Christianity. And an America sans Christianity is, is not America. I, I mean, that is not the America that that the founders. Envisioned it as, and that's not to say that the founders were theocratic fascists for God's sake. No, of course not. That's that's obviously total asinine rubbish there. But they 100 percent thought that some sense of godliness and biblical scriptural values would lead to better crafted statesmen who would guide our public life, who would pass better laws, who would render better judgments in, in in the courts, things of that nature. And unless and until we find some way, maybe it's a great awakening, I don't know, unless we we find some way to get more Christians back in church, I don't entirely know exactly what the future of America will entail. So, um, you know, I think it starts from a legal perspective, overturning some of these bad mid-20th century cases there, but it's a much, much longer and harder project, obviously.
1: Right. And I sometimes say, because I think many Jews have a visceral negative reaction to Christianity based on a thousand years or more of Christian anti-Semitism in Europe. American Christianity has always been different than European Christianity for various reasons, and people explore those different reasons. But the fact of the matter is, you never had a Christian pogrom in America, ever, in 300 years. So it's something we're we're fearing um, illogically. And then even from a spiritual perspective, how many young kids... Drop Judaism in favor of Christianity. Even among the Orthodox community, basically none. But how many Orthodox kids drop Judaism in favor of secular hedonism? A lot, unfortunately. So, I mean, Christianity is not the threat to Jewish safety or to Jewish theological orthodoxy. It's it's really secularism
0: on both levels, I would think. It's secularism, and then to a lesser extent, you know, these horrific fringe groups like the Black Hebrew Israelites, who are you know taking machetes to a Hanukkah party in Muncie, like they did three years ago. People like that. You know, we, and look, we shouldn't downplay like Nick Fuentes, who I have nothing but the most execrable, horrible things to say about him. But he doesn't speak for a particularly large segment of the population. To put it mildly, there, um, look, evangelical Christians remain Jews' best friends in America. You know, Ron Dermer, uh, the former ambassador from Israel to the U.S., had a provocative comment about a year ago or so. He was speaking somewhere here in the U.S. Like, I, you know, I think he basically said that, um, you know, the future of U.S.-Israel relations. Depends not on the American Jewish community, but on the American Christian community and evangelicals in particular. He's not wrong. He got a lot of pushback from that comment there because a lot of liberal Jewish institutions, you know, AJC federations, ADL, whatever, a lot of those guys didn't want to hear it, but he was obviously speaking truth to that extent there. And there's been some troubling polling in recent years showing that kind of younger evangelicals are a little less uh, phylo a little less Zionist than they have been in previous generations, but they're still way, way more so than most of their colleagues there. And, you know, as someone who is so active in conservative circles um, as I am, many of my greatest friends, not just in the movement, but in the world, um, are, are theologically serious conservative Christians. And um, I, I have never, ever, one time in my entire life, Literally, and I and I, and I speak at all these pro-life conferences. I'm surrounded by evangelicals all the time. I have never felt the slightest tinge of Jew hatred or even Jew skepticism, truly. I, I, have, I have never, ever, ever once felt that. I am not overstating that to be the case.
1: Very interesting. Okay, well, thank you so very much for your time. And uh, continue keeping up Newsweek as a true liberal organization, true liberal in the true sense of the word, meaning open to ideas and whatnot. Elliot, thank you for having me. This is a real real treat. All right. That does it for us. Before we go, though, a few notes. First, we want to wish a hearty mazel tov to Josh Hammer, who was single when we did this interview, but got engaged yesterday, December 20th, to Shir Cohen on a property overlooking Haarabayas. Not a bad place to begin a new chapter in one's life. So mazel tov again to both of you. Second, if you would like to sign up for our weekly newsletter, go to one. Versus 450.com. That's 1vs450.com. On the website, you'll also find a special Hanukkah, 33% off sale for all three of my interview books, a weekly chess puzzle, John Rosemond's weekly column on parenting, and a link to my education venture, which is designed for people who want to become knowledgeable on some of the greatest books that have ever been written but don't have the time to read these books themselves. Every week, I read a classic or famous book and review all its major and and interesting points for you. So instead of spending 10 or 20 hours a week reading these books yourself, hours you don't have, you can spend just one hour with me and let me do the hard work for you. Read more at 1versus450.com. Have a happy Hanukkah.